Hi everyone, and welcome to HR Works, brought to you by BLR. I'm your host, Steve Bruce. HR Works provides clear, relevant, actionable information on topics that matter to HR professionals. When you're armed with best practices and strategies to attract, retain, and engage top talent and deliver exceptional value to your organization, HR works. We're hearing more and more about design thinking, an approach to innovation and problem solving that could be useful to HR managers. But many of us, uh, and I have to include myself, don't know much about that concept or how to apply it to our organizations. To help us, we've asked John K. Coyle, founder and CEO of The Art of Really Living, to join us. John is one of the world's leading experts in innovation and design thinking. He has an MBA from Northwestern University and is a graduate of Stanford University's D School, where his academic advisor was David Kelly, the founder of IDEO, and Steve Jobs' right-hand man. John is an NBC sports analyst, two-time TEDx presenter, author, and sought-after keynote speaker. He has also won an Olympic silver medal in speed skating, an achievement he attributes directly to his design thinking background. He has taught innovation courses at Marquette University and is a thought leader in the field of chronoception, the study of how we as humans process time. His mission is to innovate the human experience, and he's been applying design thinking to Fortune 500 companies, careers, and leadership challenges for more than 20 years. And I'll just mention, John's going to be keynoting the HR Daily Advisor 2018 conference, March 8th and 9th in Savannah. John, welcome to HR Works. Thank you, Steve. I'm delighted to be here and looking forward to chatting with you. So let's begin with, uh, with the obvious question, what is design thinking? So design thinking is it's, it's simply a, uh, a method of creative problem solving. There's lots of problem solving processes out there. Design thinking is one of them. Uh, but design thinking is a particularly apt problem solving mechanism because it, it helps solve particularly challenging, stubborn, or ambiguous problems, what some people call wicked problems. So uh, core to design thinking is this continual re-asking of, are we solving the right question? As the saying goes, you can have all the right answers to the wrong question, and it doesn't matter. So design thinking is a method of creative problem solving to solve challenging uh, challenging tasks. So... In what areas uh, can people and HR managers use design thinking? Maybe you could give us an example or two, uh, maybe one from a business context and one in a personal context. Uh, absolutely. And, and I'll also give you quickly the five steps uh, that are generally included. There's, there's a host of different uh, uh, perspectives on this, but they're generally very similar. The first step in uh, the design thinking problem solving is uh, define the problem. Uh, what is the problem? Do we understand the problem? Do we have enough data to define the problem? Second, sometimes these are in reverse orders. Do we have empathy for the situation, problem, or person we're solving for? That one, that stuff's pretty unique to design thinking. Third is generating ideas, ideation, uh, sans judgment. So separating the generation of ideas from the judgment. Fourth is then prototyping, testing, uh, getting feedback, 
uh, quickly. And then finally is sort of test and launch, you know, bringing it to market. So in business, I'll give you an example from actually a client of mine. As I mentioned, you know, core to the design thinking process is continually uh, making sure you're asking and answering the right question. I have a client, the U.S. Patent and Trade Office, USPTO, and for about a couple of decades, they've been trying to solve the same challenge, which is how do we approve patent applications faster? The current rate of minimum of a year upwards to 10 years, nobody likes this waiting period, and, and it's a sort of a disservice to everyone, including USPTO people that work on things for such a long time. But the problem is that the, the business complexity continues to increase. And so despite those efforts, uh, patent application approval times have actually gotten slower, not faster, despite their efforts. So I was working with them. We started to maybe consider reframing that question using design thinking to say, wait a minute, how do we define the right problem? Maybe a better definition of this problem is how do we arm patent applicants themselves with more data with a greater amount of homework, frankly, to do such that they bring a more complete version of their application such that it can be approved faster, sort of backward integrating or upsourcing that work. And that might actually be a better question uh, to solve for. In the world of uh, personal context, I'll share an actual story from my career as an athlete where I used design thinking to uh, hack speed skating. So, you know, I graduated from a college in California without uh, a lot of ice time uh, or coaching or training uh, capabilities there, but I still managed to get 12th place in the world in speed skating my senior year in college while studying full-time. So I was pretty sure I would go from 12th to 6th to 1st by the time of the next Olympic Games. At least that was the plan. Unfortunately, though, um, the coaches of the national team, which I joined full-time, set up a design thinking equation. They wouldn't have called it that, but they set up a central challenge of how do we fix your weaknesses? How do we improve your aerobic motor? And it turns out that didn't really work out very well. I went from 12th to 34th to not making the team two years later. So I quit the team, not the sport, and I started thinking about design thinking again and said, maybe I'm asking and answering the wrong question. Let me have some empathy for my strengths and weaknesses. I'm not strong aerobically, but I'm very strong anaerobically. Instead of going farther faster, what if I could go less far, less fast? Which didn't seem possible. If you know the sport, we actually skate this big, wide track. And I thought, what if I could just dive into each corner, pivot, and just go 15% less far? If I go 15% less far, I can go 14% less fast and still win. And I practiced that all by myself for a year. And lo and behold, one year later to the date of the meet that I failed miserably, in my first race back, I broke the U.S. record by over five seconds and skated faster than the world record. Well, that's great. That's very helpful. I'm wondering, are there any particular settings or situations in which design thinking works particularly well, or conversely, uh, situations where it isn't the best approach? Well, I would say, you know, design thinking with its five steps and, and a lot of iteration is probably not for simple problems. Um, Simple problems, you can quickly generate ideas, test them, and move on. That's sort of a short circuit. But when you've got a real sticky problem, then that's time to, to use design design thinking. I, I will tell you that one of the ways that I have used design thinking is to ask and answer better questions. And when it comes to HR, I think there's really two big ones that I talk about a lot that I actually think most companies are asking and answering solving the wrong problem. So I'll give you these two and how to reframe them. 
First is, to this day, I think most companies do really anchor to weaknesses. And so they're asking and answering, particularly with performance reviews, how do we fix your weaknesses? And as a quote I heard recently goes, uh, if you're over 25 and still trying to fix your weaknesses, that ship has sailed. So I think a better question is, how do we leverage your native talents? How do we leverage your strengths? So that's one way that HR can actually start to redefine uh, you know, the protocol when it comes to performance and performance reviews and, and, and frankly, just where they place people's energy. Another one, this one's even, I think, lately be- become even more noisy, is there's a, there's a really epidemic out there right now about work-life balance, about stress, about being overstressed, about being overtasked. And there's a very common question that people ask and answer that, again, think can be reframed through design thinking. And instead of how do I get work-life balance back or how do I reduce stress to perform better, I think a better question is how do I perform better under greater stress? So reframing that question, and that's, by the way, totally possible. As it turns out, the human being's stress and stress response mechanism is, is very similar between both sport and psychological stress. And athletes are really good at learning how to take on more physical stress. You can actually learn to do the same thing in terms of work stress and psychological stress, learning how to actually take on more, do better underneath that greater stress, and learn to enjoy it. So there's uh, lots of ways that design thinking can be used to improve the workplace, how we perform, and how we feel about it. Well, it's great to have some uh, HR examples. And I think interesting that the way your uh, sports experiences have helped shape uh, how you can help HR departments. So does design thinking work best uh, when you have a team with a problem or do individual employees use it just effectively? So it's really, it's fairly uh, ubiquitous of how you can use these steps of design thinking. I I will say that you know, you've got define, you've got empathy, you've got IDA, you've got prototype, you've got test. I think empathy actually is the core step. Uh, I'll tell a quick story from undergraduate school. I had one of my professors come into the room. He stood in front of the room, started bouncing up and down with his arms by his sides. It was very strange. We were all whispering to each other, like, what is he doing? Then he bounced all around the room. He came back to the middle and he said, our first project is around springs. If you don't know what it feels like to be a spring, if you can't be a spring, if you're not in the shoes of a spring, then you can't solve for a spring. And his point was having empathy for the problem challenge of person that you're trying to solve for is more important than anything. And it gets back to our problem. So uh, individually, we can use design thinking to solve our, our career challenges. Where should we be placing our energies? How can we design our career for our strengths? And, and design around weaknesses rather than try to fix them. But in teams, it's really, really interesting. I'll, uh, I'll share a quick story again from the games. You know, th- the key with leveraging strengths in a group, in a team, is not just having diverse strengths, backgrounds, and capabilities. We all hire for that these days. I think most companies do a good job for it. But that's all kind of a waste if you don't actually utilize those individual strengths. So we went to the Olympic Games and we had four, I was very fortunate, we had four very different uh, strengths on the team. I was the sprinter, the fastest laps. Usually I anchored. 
Uh, Andy was second fastest guy, sort of uh, very consistent. We had Randy, who was really good on terrible ice and could skate through slush. And then we had Eric, potentially the slowest guy on the team, but never got tired. And so we get to the Olympic gold medal final, and uh, nominally I should be anchoring, but I was struggling because the ice there was very slow. We're skating on figure skating ice. So we sat down as a team and evaluated who should finish. And it wasn't going to be me. Andy was also another big guy struggling on the slow ice. Randy, maybe Randy, because he skates well on slush. But you know what? Eric never gets tired. Everybody's going to be super tired. Let's skate our slowest skater for the gold medal anchor. And thank God we did, because he went out there with his final exchange two laps ago with a big smile on his face and passed his way uh, from bronze to silver and was closing on gold. So the, the metaphor here is when it comes to HR and strengths and individual and team strengths, if you have a diverse set of strengths on a team, but you don't actually bother to put the right person in for the right task at the right time, then those strengths are wasted. But when you can find a way to choose somebody that's got the right strength for the right, right activity at the right time and let them do their very best, I mean, performance can go through the roof. Well, that's great. Thanks for that. Now, how about uh, leadership development? Does design thinking uh, and innovation know-how, are they important for leadership development? Yeah, you know, that's a great great question. I uh, There's this thing happening in business. I, I, I find it perplexing. So whenever I get on the phone with a, a company and, and we get talking about you know what they're working on, what their mission and values and vision are, almost every company I speak to states that innovation is essential to their future. A lot of them have it sort of, you know, in the brick wall, they have it as part of their mission, vision, or values. And then on the next question I ask is, okay, so do you have a leadership development program? And most large companies do. They obviously want to groom their leaders of tomorrow for the tasks and challenges ahead. And then my third question uh, is, so do you have an innovation leadership development component to that development program? And then there's crickets. So here we are, this large companies with large budgets pushing and pulling and prodding our leaders to become better, holding them accountable for innovation and not teaching them anything about it. They get, they get strategy guidance. They get analytics guidance. They get you know straight up leadership uh, guidance. But nobody's teaching them how to create an environment, how to create a team, how to create a culture that is uh, that drives innovation, that is facilitates that sort of spirit, the risk taking and creativity and customer focus required to d- deliver innovation. And that's I think it's a huge miss. Uh, but personally, I'm quite grateful for that miss because it keeps me it keeps me busy. <laughs> All right. So um, you also you've mentioned that design thinking can apply to personal resiliency and stress reduction. Could you explore that a little? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I kept hearing as I was working with companies, particularly over the last couple of years, about this emergent uh, wave of of being overwhelmed, of being overstressed, of being overtasked, of having too little time, and 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 that nobody was being successful in actually managing this and this whole work life balance idea. And I started thinking about that reframing through design thinking. Are we asking and answering the wrong question? And once I started digging into, wait a minute, you know, if we perform best at a certain level of stress, and that's, by the way, counterintuitive. Most people think, okay, less stress means better performance. It's actually not true. It's a bell curve. Our 
the relationship between stress and performance is a bell curve. If we don't have enough stress, we don't care enough. We're not engaged enough to do our best. If we have too much, then obviously we are not doing our best as well. So that's where this work-life balance thing comes in, where we want to be centered on just the right amount of stress. But then, you know, that curve, which is called the Yerkes-Dodson curve, by the way, it looks a lot like a bicep. And how do you build a bicep? Well, you stress it, and then, key, you recover. The problem is that most corporate athletes, I think, are doing the equivalent of 15 hours of bicep curls and wondering why their bicep atrophies rather than grows. Uh, a lot of corporate athletes are not properly recovering. And so I've done a lot of work and dug into sort of the modern neuroscience of resiliency. And yes, of course, the first step in sort of getting to a place where you can perform your best is to reduce your current levels of stress. We all know that and we play a game where we get overstressed and then take things off the list and then get balanced back, take a deep breath, and then get back overstressed again because we take on something new. Uh, but the second step is then how to recover. And a lot of people don't properly recover, and they live a very maladaptive life that is very short-sighted. And so I'll explain. So well, I'll play a little guessing game with you, Steve. Guess the top three ways that human beings recover from stress. Naps and sleep. Okay, sleep. Sleep's a good one. Uh, alcohol. More. All right, I, I knew I liked you. <laughs> uh, running. All right, so you. Uh, so I guessed um, sleep, meditation, and red wine. I was doing this actually with Dr. Ari Levy, who's writing a book on stress and stress recovery. And he informed me I was uh, wrong. Uh, you are right on one uh, in terms of the top three. So I'll go through them in reverse order. And it's a bit counterintuitive. So number three, you, you nailed, which is uh, low-grade physical exercise. We metabolize stress through movement. And if we don't have enough movement in our lives, uh, that's a really bad thing. Now, if you have some sort of job where you lift heavy objects, this is covered. Uh, but if you don't, then... You're sitting in a cube all day, then it's, it behooves you to get in a long walk, uh, park in the outlot, do something to get movement back in your life. I should have guessed that because, you know, as athletes, we didn't take rest days off. We did something easy and slow. The guys in the Tour de France, they don't, uh, they don't take their 10th day off after nine days of riding for nine hours. They actually ride for three hours just slowly. Uh, number two is social intimacy. So being around people we love, people that love us. Now, I don't know about you, but there was a period in my life where I traded this one off. People would invite me to dinner or have a cocktail, and I would say, ah, oh, I got too much work to do. And I did that again and again for about a decade. I was too busy to really maintain some of my friendships or have some of that socially intimate time other than time with my family. And that's actually very maladaptive. I would have been a better husband, father, leader, son if I had actually made the time to do that. Uh, but finally, the number one is quite surprising to me at first, and it is physical intimacy of any sort. From being with your partner to petting a puppy, we as human beings are also wired for touch. And at first, I was really scratching my head on this, but then I started thinking about you know, some of the behavioral psychological experiments, like the ones with the rhesus monkeys, where they didn't let their monkeys touch their mothers and have no touch, and they those monkeys never adapted. And the same similar sort of adjacency of the Russian orphans that were not touched as babies that were adopted in the States and, and, and never, never really adapted or were able to integrate properly. We are wired for touch. And if we don't have it, it's a huge miss. So just to conclude this thought, 
if you think about the millennial workers of today, there's a lot of them that have really lost all three of these. They quit the softball team because they're too busy with their job or their startup. They don't go out with friends anymore because they're too busy with work and they don't have a girlfriend or a puppy because they're staying up late and traveling a lot. And voila, you've got a recipe for disaster. And this new cohort, this, this emerging uh, younger set of workers has, is experiencing breakdowns, uh, depression, anxiety, and suicide at much higher rates than uh, previous generations. And I believe, and the science I think suggests that it is because they have lost their ability to recover. Somebody recently told me, was musing that if, they, if the Friends television show tried to go now, it, it wouldn't work because they would all be sitting around the coffee shop looking at their phones. That's right. They'll be just staring at their laptops and their phones and not talking to each yeah. other with their headphones. So uh, let me change directions a little bit here. Um, I mentioned that you're an expert in chronoception. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is and about your work there? Yes, I have a real fascination with time that probably started with the the weird little increments that become life-changing in sport, right? A couple hundredths of a second determine gold from fourth. And as we all know, uh, the difference between a metal and fourth is quite substantial. It can change the rest of your life. So started there, but, uh, you know, back to design thinking, I started postulating around this this thing. I was noticing that summers started to feel like they were speeding up. And I would cast back to think of how long they lasted as a kid and then compare it to, you know, modern day summers. And I wasn't okay with this acceleration. I didn't like it. So I started, you know, again, using design thinking, determining if I could ask and answer a better question. And the question that I ask and answer there is instead of uh, more years in your life, which is a decent question, how do we stay healthy and all that? I thought a better question was how to experience more life in my years, which is a reframing that uh, Abraham Lincoln famous for. And so I started digging into how, if there are still 8,035,200 seconds in a summer, which there are, same as when we were eight, then how do we figure out what's going on here? Why is time accelerating in a clockwise fashion? And very specifically, how could we take whatever cognitive bias that is causing that and reverse it and cause time to slow down, expand, dilate, and actually live summers as long or longer as when we were kids. And I figured out some ways to do that um, that really, really work. Um, so that's the work I've been doing in that area. Wow, well, that's fascinating. Um, now, we already touched uh, a little bit on design thinking and how it helped you win your medal. Was there anything more you wanted to share about that? Well, you know, the one thing that that maybe was hidden in that story is when you change the question, right? When I went from how do I fix my weaknesses or how do I improve my aerobic capacity, neither of which got me anywhere, to how do I leverage my strengths? How do I leverage my anaerobic power? How can I go less far, less fast? Part of doing so was breaking with the status quo. And that's a very, very hard thing. If you are in your job as an HR manager or director and you, for example, maybe you say, hey, this, this year's performance review, we're going we're gonna to write down top five strengths we're going to double down on in 2018. If the old way of doing things was top five weaknesses we're going to fix for 2018, it's not going to be met with a lot of warm embrace at first. 
And so the challenge that I think comes often with applying design thinking and reframing a central challenge is when you reframe that challenge, it bucks the status quo and the status quo doesn't like that. And so what I've experienced again and again in my life is when I've done that, part of what happens is you, the system starts to reject you. And so in my case, I'll give you a specific example. You know, I, I left the team to go train on my own. I chose to do that, but I was still on the team. I was still a member. And uh, so I decided actually about six weeks in to rejoin my teammates for a training camp. And while I was there, I arrived and I'd heard some sort of rumblings about why does he get to come and go. And two hours later, as I was getting off the ice after the first practice, the coach came up to me and he said, John, I'm sorry, but we have voted. Uh, the coaches and team uh, have voted and you have to go home. And so my own team voted me off the island for you know, bucking the status quo for going and doing things on my own. And that that's the risk you take when you reframe commonly accepted central challenges that frankly aren't working. And so it does take a bit of courage to go out and do things differently. But per that story, when you have the courage to do so, when you really lean into something that makes more sense, when you reframe that central problem in a new, better way, great things happen. And I will tell you, a kind of funny aside is, you know, after the breakthrough performance at the trials the next year, I found myself warmly embraced back by the team. Funny what success can do to change people's perceptions. Great. Um, so what? Uh, maybe you could give us a little sneak peek at what you're going to be discussing with us at the HR Daily Advisor 2018 uh, conference in Savannah in March. Yeah, so for this conference, for that uh, keynote, I'm going to be digging into how to use design thinking uh, to design a life a team uh, for its strengths and design around weaknesses rather than fix them. I'll be sharing some of the stories that I shared in brief here, but also, you know, sort of looking at how to apply this to the day to day, how to lean into what you do best, how to design around what you don't do best, how to leverage the strengths of a team to and adapt and adopt for what people do best and what they they don't do best. Uh, I, it's a real fun part of the program we'll do where we we take a quick assessment of people's strengths and weaknesses. And then there's a little magic trick uh, where we show that they're actually the same thing. Uh, a lot of for a lot of people, their strength is also their weakness. If you are, you know, uh, a detail oriented person, you're good chance you're also a perfectionist. If you are a very practical person, you're probably critical. If you are direct and honest, darn good chance you're also blunt and rude. Now, the common approach, again, like we talked about before, is to fix those weaknesses. But what I'll share is how do we instead design around them and make them into superpowers? So I'll just share one quick story to conclude. I have a coworker that uh, that I used to work with that is um, direct and honest and blunt and rude. And instead of fixing that problem, he merely acknowledged it. And so you would meet people, and within a few conversations, he would pull you aside and say, "Hey, by the way, I just want you to know, I have no filter. I just say what comes into my head. I, I've tried to fix it. I can't. I'm sorry in advance, but I'm probably going to make you mad at times. Uh, but I just wanted you to know how I show up. And actually." we over time learned to leverage this guy as a superpower rather than as a negative. What we did is we would pull him into meetings to sort of call BS, right? To say, wait a minute, are we all in love with this idea just because we love it? 
And he would come in and we knew he would be honest and straightforward. And so we actually named him the salty truth teller of the team. That's one example that I'll share and others about how to uh, double down on your strengths and design around your weaknesses rather than try to fix them. And in so doing, achieve some breakthrough performances and how that can apply back to the HR practice to get teams more engaged, more in love with what they do, doing more of what they love, and in so doing, increasing the performance of the team. Well, that's going to be a great keynote for uh, HR Daily Advisor 2018. Uh, so to sum all this up, any final recommendations for listeners um, and uh, how to use design thinking? I think the one thing that, that I always take away is when I'm really stuck, when I've been just banging my head against a wall trying to solve a problem, and this, this isn't just work, right? This can be at home and personal relationships and hobby and sport. Usually that's a signal that you're solving the wrong problem. You might need to reframe what you're doing to solve maybe a slightly different problem from a different angle. And when you can back up and get that perspective and look at your problem, uh, sometimes the answer has been there all along right in front of you. You just couldn't see it. And so that's what I would encourage the listeners to do is if you're stuck on something, try to get some perspective, back up, look at it from a distance, hold it up to the light and look at it at a different angle. And just maybe there isn't an easy way to solve the same problem by doing something slightly different. Well, I think all HR managers have some, uh, I think you called them wicked problems to deal yes. with. And, uh, and I think this has been very helpful today. So thanks so much for joining us and uh, providing these helpful insights. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to seeing you all in Savannah in March. Great. Listeners, please let me know what HR work should cover next. S. Bruce at blr.com. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Bruce for HR Works.